Hello, and welcome to Tradeoffs, a podcast series about how companies are seeking to sharpen their ESG credentials. I'm Ned Salter, Global Head of Investment Research at Fidelity International, and in this episode, I'm talking to the Chief Executive of Baker Hughes, the U.S. energy company. Baker Hughes sits in two spheres of the energy industry, one as an oil field services company supporting exploration and extraction companies across the world, the other as a developer and manufacturer of energy technology, most significantly for the conversion and transportation of liquefied natural gas, or LNG. Lorenzo Simonelli has been chief executive since 2017, and he joined me in the Fidelity Studios in London in September. Lorenzo Simonelli, welcome to Tradeoffs. Thank you very much, Ned. So Baker Hughes is one of the big three global oil services company. And what would you say to some who might classify Baker Hughes as an agent of big oil, facilitating the destruction of the planet? I would highly disagree. And I'd actually disagree with the comment that we're an oil field services equipment company. That's only one of many aspects that we have. At Baker Hughes, we like to describe ourselves as an energy technology company. And our purpose is very clear, to provide sustainable, affordable, secure energy to the planet and all of the people. And with that, we're actually an enabler of being able to reduce the carbon footprint and help both our customers as well as the population at large fight climate change. Okay, so an unfair characterization, perhaps. Um, And I'm keen to learn more about how you facilitate this energy transition. So but before we get into the big decisions that you as a chief executive face and that the company faces, I do want to understand a little bit more about your business. So I thought maybe at a high level, would you mind just classifying the key businesses of Baker Hughes and how they participate in that transition as well as the more traditional businesses in which you operate? It's really across two business segments. There is the uh, traditional oil field services and equipment platform, and that's where you've got the exploration, the extraction of hydrocarbons. When you think of oil, you think of gas. And then you have an industrial and energy technology reporting segment, which really benefits from the increased use of natural gas and the opportunity to liquefy natural gas into LNG, which is growing at an accelerated rate from a demand perspective, as well as then the increasing technologies of carbon capture, utilization and storage, CCUS, hydrogen being in the energy mix. So we really play at Baker Hughes across the full energy landscape. There's a hotly contested debate about the value of divestment, that when people have assets in their portfolio mix that may be more carbon intensive, one of the smartest things you can do is to divest it. What's your view on divestment versus operating a business that's carbon intensive uh, and making it greener over time? I think divestment by itself is a strategy which really shifts the responsibility to whoever is the acquirer. At the end of the day, whether uh, you're operating the asset or you divest it, you need to make sure that that pathway towards cleaner, more environmentally sustainable is there. And that's our focus. Uh, As Baker Hughes, we've got our own net zero policy. Again, we came out in 2019 
and we said that we would reduce by 2030 half of our emissions uh, on scope one and scope two and be net zero by 2050. And so as you look at divestments and you look at uh, other areas, we take that as being our responsibility also as we manage our portfolio. If you think about your business over the course of the next five years and the next 10 years, is there a serious trade-off to be made about diminishing the traditional oil and gas business, services business, and focusing almost exclusively, and we'll come to talk more about LNG, liquefied natural gas, in a little bit. Should you or should you not just shut down the old traditional, quote-unquote, dirty parts of the business to focus on the good bits? You shouldn't. And if you look at the demand growth that's happening from an energy perspective, and you look at the requirement, the biggest change of going from poverty to middle class to developed nations has been the abundance of energy. Hydrocarbons play a role in that abundance. And it's important that we lose focus of the benefits that we've received from oil and gas. At the same time, we need to continue to reduce the carbon footprint. And there's ways you can do that by minimizing flaring by upgrading equipment so that there's no leakage, by doing a series of investments from a digital perspective to drive optimization. And that's what the focus has to be now, because there is a supply-constrained world when you look at the demand outlook. And we need hydrocarbons in the coming decade to continue to play a role as we feed the world with the energy it needs. Okay, so we can't diminish the value that the hydrocarbons deliver uh, to us, to as members of society, but we also have a responsibility to make those businesses, those more traditional businesses, ever more efficient and greener over time. True. Okay. In terms of, you know, from a cash flow perspective for Baker Hughes, you know, what benefits does having these businesses together create as opposed to potentially putting them separate? Well, we think that uh, there's a lot of synergies and associated benefits between the two reporting segments. First of all, our customer base is uh, very much the same across the two. 40% of the customer base is the same. Also, we're able to leverage our engineering, our technology aspect, our global footprint. And so at this time, as we go through the energy mix and also what we're seeing from an evolving landscape, it's good to be in where there's increased activity in the short and medium term, which is in the oil field services equipment, as there is a need for hydrocarbons, there's a need for increased investment. And you're seeing that in activity both internationally and also within North America with what we see for the next few years. At the same time, it's also good to have that short, medium and long term view with regards to the evolving energy mix. And within our industrial and energy technology platform, you're benefiting from natural gas, LNG, as well as then the growth that's going to occur from CCUS, from hydrogen, clean integrated power solutions. So I like the setup and it actually provides a more stable company going forward, which then leads to free cash flow, returns to shareholders, margin rates, and makes us a very stable company as we go forward. You've highlighted that there is some synergy within Baker Hughes's portfolio insofar as your customers are very similar customers. 40% of your customers, I guess, are, are shared across business Correct. lines. Um, can you just give us some real-world examples about how that benefits not just you as a revenue and profit generator, but I guess as a, a technology company? How do, how do those synergies, in effect, really work within the business? 
as you look at it from a aspect of going to a customer, and there are many discussions that we have with our common customers on how you can go from the reservoir of the extraction of the molecule all the way through a circular approach of actually taking CO2 and re-injecting it back into the reservoir, and hence you capture and you store the actual CO2, thus reducing emissions that are going out to the atmosphere. So you've got a clear linkage between the subsurface knowledge that our oil field services and equipment company has with regards to how the geology works. You've also got the capability of the extraction within the oil field services. Within industrial and energy technology, you've got the capability of the compression, the transportation, and then the reinjection side from a storage perspective. So we can actually offer solutions. And at Baker Hughes, when we're talking to some of our customers, they're very intrigued in where are the solutions, either from a geothermal perspective, from a CCUS perspective, from a hydrogen perspective, and clean integrated power solutions. And at the foundation of it, we get to share a lot on the digital criteria as well, from a detection, a measurement, a sensing, which is homogeneous across the two areas of oilfield services and equipment, as well as industrial and energy technology. Okay, so capital can transfer from one side of the business to the other, and technology can transfer from one side of the business to the other, theoretically. Um, if we move on to LNG, liquefied natural gas, which I guess some would say is the crown jewel of the Baker Hughes portfolio, um, can you just give us an overview of, of – and obviously LNG imports into Europe are up significantly year on year. We've all read about this um, uh, on the basis of the geopolitics and, and the war going on with Russia-Ukraine. Can you just take a step back and explain to us the kind of well-to-wheel process, which is how do you get gas from the ground in the U.S. to a power plant in Europe? What is that process like? What takes place is you've got the extraction of the natural gas within the United States. Let's say it's from the Permian Basin. That natural gas is associated gas. So you then take it by pipeline. You then liquefy it in an LNG facility. There are many that are located, uh, as you look at um, there on the coastline. And then it gets shipped. And from a shipment perspective, it comes into Europe. It goes through a regasification and goes into the power generation. So the benefit is, again, from a transportation capability, a competitiveness standpoint, natural gas is one of the key ways in which you can move away from using coal. And it is a friendlier fossil fuel. And I think as you look at both the United States and Europe, the benefit they've had in reducing their carbon emissions over the course of the last few decades has been the natural shift from coal to using natural gas. And we see it as a key theme that's going to continue. And the growth outlook for LNG globally is very positive. What's the carbon tailwind, natural gas over coal, in terms that, that would make sense to, uh, to our listeners? I don't want to put a measurement on it. Uh, what I can tell you, though, is it's significant. And in fact, as you look at the studies, uh, coal is uh, by far the worst of the hydrocarbons from an emission perspective, and natural gas is the lowest. And does that include all of the transportation along the way for, for, for liquefied natural gas? 
Yes, it does, because again, the transportation would be there for coal as well. So short term, it sounds to me like having the LNG capability is great, in particular because we're in the midst of a, I guess, of an energy crisis. But I guess bringing gas from the U.S. to a destination around the world does feel like a carbon intensive process. And so how do you square off that trade off? So I think you have to go back to the energy crisis that we're facing at the moment. It's really uh, a trilemma. There's the element of affordability, sustainability, and security. And as you look at natural gas, natural gas is an abundant resource. It can be liquefied and transported, and from an emission standpoint, is actually the less impactful from an environmental standpoint. So I think when you look at it, it's actually a natural winner from a transition perspective, as well as a destination fuel in the end. And that will, over time, actually be seen. Today, you've still got a lot of the final investment decisions that need to be made, and you're seeing an increase in usage of coal. As those final investment decisions are made, you'll again see coal reduce and natural gas continue to increase. Let's come to this question about destination fuel in, in a minute, but I just want to touch on, you know, if you can put yourself in the, in, in the mindset of, a, I don't know, a utility in Europe, for example, is, is, is investing in gas now the right call? Or should you be thinking multiple years ahead and investing in, you know, further renewables? All of the above. And um, again, if you look at the energy mix, it's going to continue to evolve the energy mix, though, is supported by the fact that there is energy demand being increased. And in particular, if you go to developing world, you're going to see a continued bifurcation and diversification of the energy mix, which is why we think that the energy mix is going to be full of renewables, natural gas, hydrogen, nuclear over time. And that provides also the security of supply. So if you're a utility company, you really should be looking at the total energy basket and investing in all. Let's come back to this question about LNG and whether it's a destination fuel. The, the skeptic or the cynic in me tells me that it's simply just a transition fuel. Um, and from a carbon perspective, I guess, what is the exit strategy um, on, on LNG? If you look at it from a standpoint of the role it can play, you can start to work towards also cleaning natural gas and net zero cargoes of LNG. I think as you look at the demands of energy, you've also got to be pragmatic. You won't be able to fill the world with renewable solar panels or wind farms. You need natural gas to be there as a provider of consistent and also continuous energy. And with some of the other sources, you still have intermittency issues. And so until those get solved, natural gas and the role of LNG is here for a long time as bridging that and also being a destination fuel, especially as you look at some of the countries that don't have natural resources, uh, don't have the sun, don't have the wind. Uh, they're going to need to power, and it's better to power through natural gas and LNG than it is burning coal or burning diesel or kerosene which are some of the other forms that have been used in the past to provide them energy. 
how much natural gas exists and how long of a runway do we have? Because you've talked about it being abundant. And I guess the question, you know, there's lots of comments about peak oil. You know, it, it is not renewable in the sense that it's in the ground and at some point we'll have, have maxed out the extraction. Yeah, I don't think uh, we've got any risk of um, not having natural gas at this time or there being a view of... Uh, peak natural gas. Uh, if you look at the reserves and you look at the known quantities already, and there's still a lot that's uh, out there both onshore and offshore. And remember, there's also associated gas that's uh, available as well. So um, today, um, there is an abundance. So you mentioned a few technologies um, that, you know, what are the te technologies that you're most bullish on um, to help this transition towards net zero? You talked about hydrogen or nuclear, potentially. What yep. else is in that suite of solutions of which you're saying LNG is a part? I break it down into uh, a couple of categories. And I think um, as I look at technology today that's available, that can already have a huge impact, there are integrated compressor lines that have no leaks, there is uh, Flare IQ, which reduces the flaring of uh, methane. Then I'm very excited about the opportunity to drive continued optimization and efficiencies through data and the digital platform. It's making our equipment have increased uptime, reduced downtime, which means ultimately the footprint from a greenhouse gases is going to be better. And then you look forward and you think about the exciting developments that are happening on hydrogen. With the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, they've essentially made green hydrogen competitive with the 3 to $4 per kilogram subsidy that they've uh, implemented. And I think we are seeing now the real undertakings of a hydrogen economy being developed over time. But I'm also just as interested in CCUS. CCUS is carbon capture, utilization, and storage. And I'm interested also from a circular economy standpoint, because ultimately CO2 is going to need to be used. And so the ability to take CO2 and make something from it. And there's interesting technologies that we've been investigating and we've been uh, making small investments in to be able to produce carbon black, to be able to look at ways to get to graphite. And these to me are exciting future trends because the circular economy is the key way in which we can continue to reduce greenhouse gases and also eliminate them going forward. Interesting. Okay, so to sum it up, I guess I would characterize LNG is a carbon emitter, but it does provide needed energy security and will be an important part of the energy mix going forward, particularly that's not coal. It's great at baseload power um, and is hopefully potentially becoming even more energy efficient over time. Yes, and cleaner as well, because again, if you look at it from a pre-post combustion, there's opportunities to continue to make it cleaner from a emission standpoint as well. So if you set up the right infrastructure, we are working towards ways in which we can get to net zero LNG. So vis-a-vis -vis geopolitics, what does LNG offer compared to a more traditional energy complex? It's a great enabler. So first of all, because of the abundance that you have of natural gas. Secondly, the transportation viability and also the capability to dislocate from one part of the world to the other. So it is um, readily available, easy to transport, 
and also uh, competitive from a costing perspective. So it's got all the ingredients that actually provide that security of supply. While we're on the topic of geopolitics, I guess, you know, how has your business changed in light of the current geopolitical environment? And what's your interpretation of what that means for the energy transition roadmap? I mean, everyone's talking about net zero. Is it over? Um, are we going to have to give up on our targets because we need to protect energy security? What happens next? It's definitely not over. And what we've seen now is a heightened interest and discussion around security. At the same time, the trilemma that we're facing around affordability and sustainability with security is unchanged. And so over the course of the next few years, you're actually going to see a ramp up in the investments, as you've seen with the Inflation Reduction Act within the United States, as you've seen within Europe, some of the policies that are being introduced, Australia, other locations that continue to promote the move towards lower carbon intensive energy mix. And I actually think even though short term, you may see an increased use of coal or an increased use of hydrocarbons, over the long term, you're going to see an acceleration of the deployment of capital also towards a new energy mix where hydrogen is going to be accelerated. You've got the opportunity of uh, expanded CCUS and the circular economy. So it's um, short term, medium term and long term view but sustainability is definitely not off the table. On the theme of emissions, you've set a net zero target for 2050, and that includes both your scope one and scope two emissions. These are the emissions that are directly related to Baker Hughes business operations. I know this is a thorny issue. Can you tell me about your scope one and scope two plans and what's most difficult? Yes, I mean, we started in uh, 2019 and really laid out a pathway for by 2030 to be down 50% in scope one and scope two. The most important thing is measuring what your emissions are and understanding what they are through your operations. And then having specific projects in place to reduce that emission. So forklift trucks, moving from diesel forklift troughs to battery. As you look at lighting within facilities, being able to go to LEDs. As you think about where our power comes in for our facilities, make sure that it comes in from uh, green energy. So it is uh, really a focus on managing our own internal supply chain and having projects in place to be able to reduce that carbon footprint. Likewise, when we look at the products that we're producing, how do we make sure that there is a carbon measurement associated with the product? And how do we continue to work new engineering and also new designs to reduce that carbon content? So your scope one and scope two emissions are roughly 500,000 metric tons, I guess, per year. And, and I know this is a tricky piece, but the scope three emissions are estimated to be something like 400 times that. And, and I know that it's, it's quite clear that the scope three emissions are things that are outside of your control. But I guess just, a, and, and the numbers are huge, they're quite staggering. So in your opinion, who owns the scope three emissions? I know it's a bit of an existential question, but who owns the scope three emissions of, of, your, of your customers? It is a challenging question, and I think it's been hotly debated. And clearly, the usage of our equipment by our customers leads to a scope-free emissions. And we have to work collaboratively together to understand 
the way in which they're also utilizing that equipment and help them to continue to reduce the scope-free impact. And so I see it as a discussion that's required across multiple partners, across multiple industries, and there is a joint ownership in educating and also having those discussions versus any one person just being responsible. If you're the chief executive of a car company, it would be quite clear, like you have clarity on your scope one and scope two emissions. Um, but you would worry about the scope three emissions. You would worry about the cars on the road, which I guess is their equivalent of scope three. And you may say, drive less. You may work with regulators to, you know, maybe increase some uh, you know, tax burden of driving into central London, for example. How could Baker Hughes, if if asked, interact with those customers to try to get them to help them reduce their scope three admission, emissions? What kinds of things might you need to do? Well, we have those discussions already because a number of our uh, customers, we have joint MOUs on how we approach uh, decarbonization, reduction of greenhouse gases. MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding. Yes, and it's being open to new technology. It's being open to advances that are being made, also operating uh, nature and parameters of the equipment that they're using. And it goes holistically through a lot of different elements. To your point, though, it's important that it is a discussion and that we're working collectively together across all the stakeholders. It's not just as simple as it's the driver of the car and it's their problem. Any specific examples of that collaboration where your engineers may sit with a client's yeah, we engineers? Have, uh, yeah. We have a partnership with Shell. We signed an MOU with regards to focusing on decarbonization within their own operations, which obviously is through the equipment that we're providing them. And these are the types of approaches that we see. Okay. So a final cheeky question on scope one and scope two then. It's a financial cost to you, I assume. Have you characterized how much the achievement of your net zero targets might cost? So in totality, no. We look at it from a project's perspective and we see the benefits that are associated. And it's not true that it always has to cost you more money. Um, it can actually cost you less money. And those are the projects you need to execute uh, straight away. And we continue to look at things that make sense from a return standpoint. Okay, so you're confident that scope one and scope two will be achieved by, um, 2050. by 2050 under your net zero pledge. And you'll continue to engage with clients on scope three as as existential as it may, as it may sound. Yes. Um, just finally, I wanted to turn to just sort of people and, and, and you know, on the, on the, on the non-technology side of your business for a moment. How do you attract talent? You know, I was, we were researching, it looks like the number of petroleum engineers in the United States, for example, has declined precipitously over recent years. You know, STEM graduates maybe want to go work at technology companies, traditional internet technology <laughs> companies, maybe, let's say. Um, how do you attract good talent at this point in the cycle? No, Ned, it's something we discuss a lot because without the required talent, we're not going to progress the journey. And so it's so important that we go out and communicate that Baker Hughes is an energy technology company. If you want to be somebody that's playing a role in reducing the greenhouse gases, making energy more resilient, more efficient, affordable, sustainable, then come and join Baker Hughes. And we're not you know, just an oil field services company or a dirty industry. We are there with technology to enable that journey towards the goals of 2050. And that's where you've got to go out with a different narrative to the recruits, to 
the talents that are there and engage them in a purpose of what we're doing as a company. And we've been very fortunate that we've been able to recruit great talent. Uh, people can resonate to what it is we're doing as an energy technology company. And they see that it's a role that will have an impact at the end. Have you had to pay people more to attract them away from other technology-oriented businesses? You know, we've uh, consistently said we're going to have to be competitive. And uh, we don't see ourselves as needing to be the top payer or clearly not being the bottom payer. We're competitive and we'll always strive to be fair and equitable also with our employees and uh, make sure that we're competitive. I guess finally, I just wanted to close thinking about, so this is a tough one I want to ask you, but obviously sometimes the views of stakeholders can be perceived at the odds of one another. Can you think of an example in Baker Hughes's experience where you've had to trade off sort of one set of stakeholders' demands for another? Trade-offs are an everyday factor in running a company. And you're not going to get every trade-off right. But you've always got to uh, make a judgment call and be decisive in making those trade-offs. I think uh, as you look at uh, trade-offs in capital allocation, there's a lot of technologies out there. Which one are you going to bet on? And you go with the best information you have at the time. The important thing is speed. And I think uh, as uh, many CEOs know, what can be the worst outcome is a non-decision because then you are essentially standing still. And with change being a constant, you've got to move forward and make the best decisions at the time. It's hard to be all things to all people, I guess, at, at, at any particular time. Um, and we've talked a lot about you know, the things that you're trying to do to transition your business. Is there a point where you may disagree with shareholders and you may say, I'm willing to accept a lower ROI for a period of time because there's a time horizon arbitrage, guys, and I need you to think five years out. Would you be willing to sacrifice that, you know, in terms of sort of near-term earnings to fund a long-term benefit, tailwind to the business? That's the conversation we're having also with our major shareholders. And I think there is a group of investors out there that look at the long-term nature and trajectory of a company and buy into that. If you look at some of the um, new energy areas that we're investing into, reality is you won't see them until 26, 27 fully being uh, commercialized and fully available. Our role, though, as CEOs is to make sure that the company that's here today continues to be viable, continues to be a reality in 10 to 15 years' time. And so we've got to continue to balance that discussion with the investors between short-term, medium-term, and long-term. And I can say, for the most part, investors acknowledge that we're here to grow longer term. And that's why, you know, we spend a lot of time with the long-term investors. Lorenzo Simonelli, Chief Executive of Baker Hughes, thank you for coming on Tradeoffs. Ned, thank you very much. And thank you for listening. To hear what our investment team have to say about this interview and to get the broader investment implications on what's been discussed, listen to the Tradeoffs analysis, also on the Fidelity Answers podcast feed now. You can read and watch more on this interview and other conversations with CEOs, plus bonus material at your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. Check for links in the show notes. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark with technical support from Adam Sheldrake and Callum Blitz. The editor is Richard Edgar. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye.
This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.